Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, our highlight show. And we're presenting a selection of the most delectable morsels from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. This week, we have yogic tycoons in India, subpar propaganda in Venezuela, and sinister surveillance programmes on the net. Also, while this will be a Trump-free edition of Tasting Menu, do go download last Friday's The Week Ahead and test your knowledge against The Economist's US team in our 100 Days of Donald Trump special. Now, these two are looking slightly nervous, like highly strong racehorses in front of me. It's tense. It's tense. It's very tense. No, I'm going to... Uh, Sanctuary Cities. Sanctuary Cities. So you're only going for one? Uh, no, it's fake news. Don't you think, John? <laughs> yeah, it's our first sign think, of fake news. I think we've been stood So up. I think oh, we're it's the quibbling media. over... It's the mainstream media. Ba- it's the mainstream media. <laughs> yeah. But first, how to have a better death was our cover line this week, as our leader argued that the way we die has been changing rapidly. Until the 20th century, the average human lived about as long as a chimpanzee. Today, science and economic growth mean that no land mammal lives longer. Yet an unintended consequence has been to turn dying into a medical experience. Most deaths in rich countries follow years of uneven deterioration. Roughly two-thirds happen in a hospital or nursing home. What's more, the lead-up to death is rarely peaceful. They often come after a crescendo of desperate treatment. Such zealous intervention can be agonising for all concerned. Some patients choose aggressive courses of treatment. But too often, patients receive drastic treatment in spite of their dying wishes, by default, when doctors do everything possible, as they have been trained to, without talking through people's preferences or ensuring that the prognosis is clearly understood. The solution? More palliative care is needed. Until recently, it was often dismissed as barely medicine at all, mere tea and sympathy when all hope was gone. Recent studies have shown how wrong-headed that is. Most doctors enter medicine to help people delay death, not to talk about its inevitability, but talk they must. These conversations have become rarer, but our leader argued that they're essential to good care. As death has been hidden away in hospitals and nursing homes, it has become less familiar and harder to talk about. But honest and open conversations with the dying should be as much a part of modern medicine as prescribing drugs or fixing broken bones. A better death means a better life, right until the end. But don't worry, this is just the beginning of our tasting menu as we head over to an article in our business section that explored the habits of India's unlikely retail giant. Executives at firms selling consumer staples like to think of themselves as marketing gurus. But how many could actually contort themselves into the lotus position, let alone attempt a headstand? 
Such feats are nothing for the top brass at Patanjali, an Indian purveyor of toothpaste, cooking oil, herbal concoctions and much else. The firm is fronted by a genuine guru too. Baba Ramdev, an ascetic yogi who is the public face of the brand, makes for an unconventional capitalist symbol. But with Acharya Balkrishna, a devotee of his who serves as the firm's boss and majority owner, he has built a consumer goods powerhouse that is vying with the business school graduates at the multinationals. So what's the formula for taking on their competitors? Good quality and value, plus indignant nationalism. Newspaper ads beseech customers to shake off the yoke of multinational firms in the way their forebears resisted Britain's East India Company. A dash of cow urine in a handful of products, including soap and floor cleaner, burnishes its Hindu credentials. But as the company grows, it may lose its unique flavour. Skeptics think the company is as big as it can get without becoming more like the multinationals it decries. Patanjali may also find its margins nibbled at by imitators. Other spiritual leaders have noted Patanjali's success. Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, a guru with a big following among the urban middle classes who rivals Mr Ramdev for Mr Modi's affections, is branching out from Ayurveda into food and personal care. Others will follow. It does not take a marketing guru to figure out how easily followers can be turned into shoppers. And I'm sure I'll be on the bandwagon too. That is, if I can extract myself from the lotus position in time. But it's time to move on from yogic calm to explosive anger now, as we head to an article in our Venezuela section. In weeks of almost daily protests, opponents of Venezuela's authoritarian regime have found different ways to express their anger. They have held raucous banner-waving marches, a silent demonstration and a sit-in on Caracas's main roads. There is, however, among the ruling disciples of former President Hugo Chavez, one oasis of calm. But all is well in the world of Nicolás Maduro, the country's much-loathed president. While chaos engulfs Venezuela's cities, his social media team has been seeking to humanise the dictator with video vignettes that emphasise his homespun origins and simple wisdom. In one video posted on his Facebook page, he rhapsodises on the innocence of childhood as he perches awkwardly on a playground swing. In another, he admires a panorama of an apparently tranquil Caracas from the safety of a cable car gondola. Sometimes he takes to the wheel of his car with his wife, Celia Flores, sitting glumly beside him. This is an occasion to reminisce about his early career as a bus driver. The videos may not be having the desired effect. Venezuelans are not beguiled. The films show a falta de respeto, or lack of respect, many say. I think he actually enjoys laughing at us, says Daniel Torres, an engineering student. And as our article pointed out, the videos are lacking not just in planning, but in execution. One of Mr Maduro's clips shows him driving through a poor neighbourhood of Caracas to show off the apparent cheerfulness of the locals. A wall scrawled with the words Maduro, murderer of students, is clearly visible as he drives past, but not to the oblivious president. Chavistas used to be good at propaganda – Now they cannot even get that right. And we go from one chaotic social media campaign to another as we move to an article in our China section exploring how a wayward plutocrat is making waves. 
In China, tycoons are often privy to murky secrets. Their dealings inevitably bring them into close contact with officialdom. They know whose palms can be greased and who the real power brokers are in the shadowy world of Communist Party politics. They are careful, however, not to speak out. An angry politician can easily destroy a business and have a person jailed. No wonder then that many Chinese have been transfixed by the claims made by a self-exiled property magnate, Guo Wenguai, in a recent series of tell-all interviews and tweets, and that the party is trying hard to discredit him. His claims are appropriately explosive. The unproven allegations by Mr. Guo, who is also known as Miles Kwok, reached to the pinnacle of the party. Most shockingly, Mr. Guo says a relative of a current leader has been trotting the globe on a plane worth billions of yuan and playing around with women, in spite of the party's long-running campaign to curb profligacy among the elite and to rein in corruption. So might Mr. Guo be growing, growing, gone in short order. The foreign ministry said last week that Interpol, an international body for police cooperation, had issued a red notice to members that Mr. Guo is a wanted man. He may even have incurred the wrath of China's president himself. Mr. Guo's outburst comes at a sensitive time for the president Xi Jinping, who is preparing for a party congress late this year. A hugely important opportunity for him to install his allies into the most important jobs. He does not want his efforts to be impeded by anything that could undermine his authority. But Mr. Guo is still tweeting, and Chinese social media users are still reading. Freeweibo.com, a website that automatically monitors censorship of Weibo, a Twitter-like service, shows that Mr. Guo's name is the most searched-for term on the social media platform. If he keeps on talking, it will be hard for Mr. Xi to knock it down the rankings. Of course, Twitter isn't the only place you can find out about the goings-on of international governments. There's also Economist Radio. As we take a quick look at what's been on our slate of programming this past week, our Money Talk show took a look at what the ongoing French election means for business. If you chat to business leaders, as I've been doing, and just ask them the question to imagine the possibility of a Le Pen victory, just as Trump and Brexit came along,、uh, they all go a little bit pale, and then they describe chaos and emigration and people running for the hills. And in the following show, Babbage reflected on a big week for the prospects of the flying car. So Uber X, Uber Pool, Uber Black, and now Uber Chopper, <laughs> Uber Air, <laughs> Uber Air, even better. Yes, perfect. The Economist asks followed the lead on our cover, bringing in surgeon and author Atul Gawande for a conversation about conversations about death. You're declaring I'm fighting for having a good day today, rather than giving up on having a good day today for some possibility of time in the future that is fast drifting away. And the week ahead didn't just feature our Trump quiz. Oh no, cartoonist Cal also stopped by to talk about how the presidency is affecting the president. You probably notice he's got small eyes; they squint an awful lot, but they looked a preponderance of the time while he's in the Oval Office very unhappy. Even when he smiles, his eyes tell you a different story. But we go from listening to eavesdropping now, as an article in our science section explores the ways our habits online may be more vulnerable to snoopers than we like to think. 
Remember that racy film you probably should not have enjoyed on Netflix last weekend? Erin Trommer's algorithms can tell what it was. Although videos streamed from services such as Netflix, Amazon and YouTube are encrypted in various ways to ensure privacy, all have one thing in common. They leak information. And his team have worked out how to read it when they're encrypted and sent to you. Your streaming videos are chopped up into segments of different size. But the size of those segments varies on the specific programme you're watching. The resulting pattern forms a video fingerprint. Dr Trummer's method recognises this fingerprint by comparing it with a pre-assembled library of such prints that a snooper has made from videos the viewership of which he might want to follow. Once trained, Dr Trummer's neural network can identify films with up to 99% accuracy, based on a fingerprint between one and five minutes long. You can learn a lot about someone from the videos they watch. Personality, preferences, politics and so forth. As Dr Trommer notes, by being able to monitor this, I can show personalised ads based on your viewing habits, adjust your insurance premiums or send in the Spanish Inquisition. Such attacks might be difficult to stop. In most countries, placing this sort of spyware on a machine without permission would be illegal but its ability to spy remotely might get around that. Mind how you go then, and watch what you watch. But we go from private viewing to public participation now, as we take a look at what our readers have been sending in to the letter section, starting with a former diplomat who wanted to back up Badgett. From Simon Fraser, Permanent Undersecretary from 2010 to 2015, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, London. Badgett is correct. Britain needs a reinvigorated foreign policy led by a stronger foreign office. That will not be achieved with Potemkin diplomacy. Fortunately, Britain still spends a lot on international action, but only a fraction of it on diplomacy, less than on pensioners' winter fuel allowance. Of every £1,000 of public spending, over £33 goes on defence £12 on foreign aid and £2 on the Foreign Office. Seven government departments now handle aspects of international policy. To avoid fragmentation, the Foreign Office should coordinate international policy, as the Treasury does domestic economic policy. On Badgett's question about who is the best person to lead this, I plead the fifth. And a piece about parking in last week's issue sparked a number of lively responses. Todd Colby in Florida wrote in to explain his predicament. I would be more likely to join a carpool or take public transport if I knew that my fellow co-workers and I were going into and out of the office at the same time. The erosion of the traditional eight-hour workday is one reason why people don't share rides. We don't know exactly when we'll be heading home at the end of the day while another American reader explained a novel solution to an individual's parking problem. From Jürgen Pape, Granville, Ohio. Praying to St Anthony may work for some when trying to find parking. Others ensure a slot by filling spaces with fake fire hydrants that they conveniently keep in their cars. 
which reminds me I should finish this before I lose my space. We'll be back next week with another edition, but in the meantime, do stay in touch with us. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or send us emails, radio at economist.com. But that's it for this week's tasting menu. In London, this is The Economist.